All right, guys, welcome back to lesson 108, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Yet we have been digging through the Word of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now here we are at the end of Deuteronomy. Can you believe this, you guys? We literally have three more days. It's been really fun. It's been really rewarding, enriching, challenging, stretching, because, you know, when you go through these seasons of Genesis, you're talking about the seed and how that penetrates all the way through, literally, uh, the gospel, uh, the gospel, the, the book of Genesis, and then you're getting into Exodus, and you're talking about the deliverer, then you're getting into Leviticus, you're talking about atonement, and then you're talking in Numbers, and you're talking about the rock, and now here we are in Deuteronomy, and we're talking about how everything we believe prophetically points to the ultimate prophet, Jesus. And what I've been hearing, and what I've been encouraged by, as many of the students, and not even necessarily because of the teaching, but because you are going through verse by verse, you're slowing down in your reading. And honestly, that's what we're after, is that you would allow the word of God to sink deep into your heart. You'd almost allow, we're going to get into this in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30, that you would allow the word of God to circumcise your heart every single day. And that's what I believe is happening to the Israelites if they follow and obey what he's asking them to do. The problem is, is that many times they don't do that. Many times they'd rather take the curse side rather than the blessing side. And so what happens in Deuteronomy 29, I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter. You know, verses 1 through 8, basically you have a historical review. How many times have we had that? I kind of feel like, strangely enough, you know, Deuteronomy is a lot of repeat, to be honest. They're repeating, ready for this, the copy of the law. They're repeating the law. Why? Because the Israelites are getting ready to go into the land. So Moses has to tell the new generation, guys, I need to make sure you understand all of this. Here's what I think needs to happen in the United States. I actually think we need to gather all of the younger generation, let's just say 40 and under, and we need to actually walk through um, the Declaration of Independence. I think we need to walk through major uh, historical documents in America, because honestly, I don't think we know them. That's the point I'm getting at, okay? Obviously, we don't live and breathe off of the Declaration of Independence, but you get the, it serves as a framework. And I think that's what we're doing here. Is it's a little bit different with, with Moses. He's saying, guys, you have to live and breathe on this. Then you'll receive the blessings. If not, you'll receive the curses. But the problem is, is that Moses was, I think, internally nervous. nervous. They're going to forget. What if they forget? So let's do a historical review. And then he gathers everybody together in verses 9 through 15 of Deuteronomy 29. And he says, guys, I've given you the historical review. Now I need you to keep the covenant. I need you to keep what I'm telling you to do. Remember, when they cross the Jordan, they're supposed to pull out these stones, supposed to put plaster on them, supposed to write the wall on it, and then also write the the law on there. And then at the same time, they're supposed to present a burnt offering. So in other words, they're supposed to remember what God has done, and they're supposed to implement it in their lives. And Deuteronomy 29 is walking through this process. But at the very end of 16 through 29, uh, what I like about this is, is that there are consequences, though, if you don't do this. And in fact, Kevin, can you go there? In Deuteronomy 29, verse 20, this is the drastic scenario. Think about this. Because of disobedience, it says the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person and every curse written in this scroll will descend on him. And you ready for this? The Lord will blot out his name under heaven. Disobedience leads to, in the Old Testament, your name will be blotted out. Uh, and the, I don't know how more drastic you can get. Your name, oh, don't see it in heaven, sorry. And I think that's the point. Please remember all that he's done. Please remember to keep the covenant. But if you don't, here's consequences. So that's what we see in Moses' third sermon, starting in Deuteronomy 27 all the way through Deuteronomy 30. And so that's what we're going to go through today, you guys. We're going to dig into Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. It says, when all of these things happen to you, I love this, the blessings and the curses I have set before you. 
In other words, it's your choice. You can choose the blessings or the curse and then you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. I think this is a cool picture here. And you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and all of your soul by doing everything I am giving you today. In other words, what uh, what Dr. Tom Constable says is that this first section, one through 10, you're going to see the possibility. That's the key of restoration. Restoration can happen when you, Scripture says, when you turn to the Lord. And it says in verse 3, when you turn to the Lord, He will restore your fortunes. He's going to have compassion on you. And gather you again from all of the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Why has He scattered you? Because of disobedience. So what we're going to walk through is these first 10 verses. It talks about the possibility of restoration. And it's going to happen. Moses, as the Nelson's commentary says, is that Nelson's, Moses says, he's foreseeing the future, okay, apostasy. He knows that the apostasy is going to take place. He knows that they're going to turn away, that they're going to rebel. But he also releases as a prophetic word, future repentance and return is going to take place to the land. So it's kind of one of those mixed messages. Guys, I know you're going to be disobedient, but praise the Lord. I know that God's going to restore everything back to how he designed it. And he's going to use you, the Israelites. And so here you have a prophetic word being released. And in fact, it makes me think it's a very simple message, but go to Acts 3 verse 19, if you would, Kevin. This whole point about restoration and repentance and, and turning back to the Lord in Acts three nineteen, here you have Peter, right? Therefore, repent and turn back. Why? Why do we need to turn back? So that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah, verse 21. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Now, you catch this? Restoration, ultimate restoration is going to take place. Back up to verse 20, if you can, Kevin. It says, and that restoration is going to come through Jesus, right? But it comes back to verse 19 that that starts, though, when we repent and turn back to him. That repentance, that season of refreshing, it takes place when we recognize that it comes through Jesus. Now think about this though. He's going to restore your fortunes. He's going to have compassion on you. I believe that there's a partial uh, fulfillment of this, but not all of it. Okay. What I mean by that is, Kevin, I'm going to walk through some prophets. Okay. Now remember what it says in verse 21. Go to Acts 3 verse 21 says, watch this, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. They talk about restoration that's going to actually come when people turn back to him. Restoration and repentance is going to take place and the prophets say it's coming. Now watch, let's go to Isaiah 54 verse 7. I'm going to take some time and I'm going to walk through how the holy prophets began to prophesy about this taking place, this restoration to the disobedient Israel. Okay, you guys with me on this? Israel has been disobedient. We're prophesying these prophets. Now, restoration is going to take place and prophets begin to talk about it. Now, it's not just Moses, but now let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah says in verse seven, I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with great compassion. Verse eight, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but I'll have compassion on you. Look at this with everlasting love. That that covenant will be forever. And God says, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So Isaiah talks about this restoration. Let's go to, I know that Jeremiah talks about this, but I want to go to Ezekiel. Can you go to Ezekiel 36, verse 33? 
these holy prophets talk about this time of restoration that's coming, even though they've been disobedient. Ezekiel 36, verse 33, this is what the Lord God says. On the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the the ruins will be rebuilt. Verse 34, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in sight of everybody who passes by. Verse 35, then they'll say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were once ruined, desolate and destroyed are now fortified and inhabited. Keep it here for a second, Kevin. This is crazy. The only thing I want to just say now is, is that God is beginning to show even our little team our role right here in this verse. 60% of all of Israel is in the Negev, the wilderness. And God is actually beginning to take that wilderness. This is crazy. And he's beginning to turn it into the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't want to go extreme. Like it's little, little by little. But God's beginning to restore a whole lot of this stuff. And I think we're beginning to see little tastes of this. That's just the land, verse 36 of Ezekiel 36, 36. Then the nations will, that remain around you will know. And remember, we talked about this even yesterday, Rich. We talked about how people will fear, right? They'll fear the Israelites. People eventually are going to be in awe about what God is doing and says that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I'll do it. Verse 37. This is what the Lord says. I will respond to the house of Israel and do this for them. I will multiply them in number like a flock. The last time we talked to you guys, we talked about how the birth rate is going to get low because of their disobedience. We talked about everything is going to shrink. And now he's saying, I'm going to multiply them in like in a number like a flock. Well, that goes back to Genesis 12. And I'm going to multiply them through their seed. Everything you guys points to and the prophets are saying, look, we might be in a season of disobedience, but don't worry. Restoration is coming and it's to come through the Messiah. Just to close it out in verse 38 of Ezekiel. So the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people, just as the flock of sheep for sacrifice is filled in Jerusalem during its appointed festivals. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You know, in 1948, Israel was established as a nation, May 14th, 1948. That scattering is actually beginning to take place. The gathering of the scattering is beginning to take place. I believe now they estimate in Israel, it's between seven to eight million people, I believe. And so all of these scattering, now that doesn't mean all the Jews are coming back yet, but they're coming. And I think that's what blows my mind is that we're seeing you guys, some of this prophecy actually begin to take place. So Isaiah talks about this restoration process. He talks about this compassion on the people. Uh, You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Let's go to Hosea. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned from him. In verse five, I will be like the dew to Israel. In other words, he'll just show up in their lives. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Verse six, his new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. Verse seven, the people will will return and live beneath his shade. I love that picture right there. The people will actually return and live under his shade, under his wings. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His, His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. And then in verse eight, Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. Watch this. I'm like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. So here you have now Hosea talking about, yeah, things might be desolate, but I'm going to restore this. I'm actually going to bring fruit. I'm actually going to bless the people of of Israel. Let's keep going to the minor prophet Joel. Again, all of this comes back from Acts 3, verse 21, the holy prophets talking about a time of restoration. 
Joel 3, verse 16, the Lord will roar from Zion. Look at this and raise his voice from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the Israelites. Verse 17, then you will, you know, then you will know that I am the Lord, your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Look at this. Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again. We've had seasons of Assyria. We've had seasons of Babylonian uh, folks running and destroying and, uh, and wiping out Jerusalem, but never again, it will be restored. And verse 18 says, in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the streams of Judah will flow with water and a spring will issue from the Lord's house, watering the valley of Acacias. Verse 19, Egypt will become desolate. How interesting is that? The place that served as, you know, the place to be where everything was the best of the best. It'll become desolate and Edom, a desert wasteland because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Verse 20, but Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. This verse right here will tell you one thing about uh, the man in Iran. When the man in Iran says, I want to wipe off Israel off the face of the earth, that would completely contradict this right here. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. And in verse 21, I will pardon their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord's presence dwells already in Zion, but ultimately long-term it will happen and nothing will ever, I don't know how to put this, nothing will ever fall again on Jerusalem. So here you have major and minor prophets that are saying, Kevin, can you go back to Acts 3 verse 21? Acts 3, verse 21, has this, this mentality. Heaven must welcome him, the Messiah, in verse 20, until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. The holy prophets are prophesying about, look, the times of the restoration of all things. These things will come to fruition. And in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 30, it says, even if your exiles are at the ends of the earth, I love this, Moses, the prophet says, he'll gather you and bring you back from there. So I guess here's my question. You know, this, all this that we're talking about, part of it is coming to fruition after the Babylonian exile. Okay. You don't have to go there, Kevin, but in Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 14, we're talking about part of the restoration has taken place, but the part about complete restoration, the part about the Messiah coming back, it hasn't come to fruition yet. So in Dallas seminary, they always say it's an already, but not yet. Already some of it has happened, but not all of it has taken place. And so here's the question. What do you do with Israel now? What do you do with Israel? It's a hot topic in all of the church in America, whether we like it or not. So I want to I go off of some comments from Warren Wearsby. Uh, and I like what he does. He describes the role of Israel and he describes the role of the church. Because there's so many questions about some say the church today is now the spiritual Israel. So Israel is in the Old Testament, but now we have the church, the body of Christ in the New Testament. So if there's going to be restoration of all of these things, the Messiah is coming back. Surely Israel just becomes the church and then they become part of the body of Christ. I think that's kind of the mentality. And they think that all of that, when they say the church is now Israel, the spiritual Israel, they are saying that all when they say this, okay, I want to make sure everybody understands this. When they say that the church is now the spiritual Israel, here's the implications behind this. They're saying that all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises are being fulfilled in a spiritual sense through the church. That's what they're saying. 
just want to make sure everybody understands when you say the church is now Israel, you're saying all of those promises comes through the church. Now others, okay, will say, so I'm going to give you a different perspective. As according to Warren Wearsby, others would say that the Old Testament promises must be taken at face value and that we should expect a fulfillment of these face value promises when Jesus comes and returns to establish his kingdom on earth. You know what that means? It means there's a pause button on some of these because we haven't seen it yet. But when Jesus comes back, that restoration is going to take place. That makes sense, you guys? And so I think for me, what happens is, is that we don't want this pause button to stay paused. Does that make sense? We don't want to say that those promises, no, 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 let's just say now it's all for us. Let's just take these and say this works. Well, these are some of the promises that God has given his chosen people. And it's not for the Gentiles. It's clearly for the Jewish people. And what, what Wearsby says, and I love Wearsby's perspective, he says, Moses seems to be telling about Israel and not some, uh, he seems to be talking about Israel, not some of the people of God in the future. Like when you take the people of God now today, oh, this is, uh, we're, we're God's people. No, I think the people of God are actually for Israel. This is how I know that these, act, these statements, I feel like you can back up scriptural. The church, when I say the church, those that believe, those that are Gentiles that believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah, the church has no covenantal relationship to the land of Israel. We have no covenantal relationship to the land of Israel for God gave the land to Abraham and his descendants, as said in Genesis 15. Now, the blessings and the curses that were declared to Israel, they weren't declared to us. So all of this land that God is promising them, a lot of it is conditional. A lot of saying, if you experience this, I will bless you with this. If you don't, I'll take it away from you. Like, it's not for the, the body of Christ. So I don't understand why we, why do we blend these worlds together? Like, why are we not okay with just saying God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church? I think what I see, Kyle, is people don't read uh, the Old Testament. You know, they don't slow down like we've talked about slowing down and read it for what God's saying to his people and then they jump to the New Testament and Christ fulfills the law and they lump the covenant in with the law and say well now that's for us you know Kevin I'm going to go on a complete rabbit trail here for a second I think that I think you're absolutely right about we don't we don't necessarily dig into the Old Testament as much as we should there's always been this complaint, and it's maybe an internal in my head. <laughs> I don't know my Jewish roots. I don't know how I'm connected to Jesus through, because he, he's Jewish. But I think in that then, I think I automatically say, well, if Jesus is Jewish, then automatically I can embrace the, the things in the Old Testament. It's just, it's a natural thought of mine. And you know, here's where I'm going on the rabbit trail. You know, when I had the Damascus Road experience in April 5 and 6 of 2001, is at Taylor University, and I never, I'll never forget the Lord telling me a specific role that I have. And I've never actually told people what the role is. But one of the things uh, he said in there was he identified, I'll just say this, my target audience, those that I'm supposed to love on, those that I'm supposed to pour into and minister. And he said, uh, my people. And I'll never forget, he said, you know, the, the things that he shared, but then he, he said, my people. And I'll never forget, I wrestled with that for 12 years. Who are his people? And I kept wrestling with that and wrestling with that. And I kept thinking, well, it's got to be the church. Like, that's just, 
We are his people, right? We are God's people. But in the context of the Damascus Road experience and what he talked to me, it was totally the Jewish people. And I wrestled with that. You know why I wrestled with it? Because I wasn't in the Old Testament. I didn't actually understand that language that the Lord spoke to me. It was actual scripture. It was actual truth. What he revealed to me was actually the word of God. But I didn't have it written on my heart. I didn't have it written on a stone. I, I didn't even know that that language was, was referencing the Jewish people. And if we don't know that language, we naturally say that's for us. And I think you can see in verse 5 of Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 30, he says, the Lord then, talking about the view of Israel, okay, talking about once these things begin to happen, he's going to gather them back. He's going to bring them back from exile. He says, then the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed and you will take possession of it. That's not for the church. And remember, remember in the old days, remember in Genesis and Exodus and then in Numbers and we didn't in Leviticus, we talked about the land boundaries. We talked about the, the land of where God has everything. Do you remember when um, like we, Israel, okay, Israel has not and does not currently have all of the land that it was promised, right? If you go off of the, the actual boundaries, then I think it's fair to say not all of it has come to fruition. And I don't think, just to be funny here, I don't think the Assemblies of God and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Mennonites and the Charismatics, I don't think we're going to go in and claim that land as ours. I think that'd be weird if we said to the Palestinians or we said to the Arabs or we said to the, you know, the Jews, hey, this land is ours. They'd be like, beat it. Deuteronomy 30 says that's our land. <laughs> I think you get my point, though, because we don't dig into the word. And I, I'm, I am saying that to myself. Like, I couldn't tell you exactly all the boundaries, but I do know that, that the Lord has a plan for his people and he's going to cause them to prosper and pl- cause them to multiply more than he did even the fathers. I just don't want us to miss this. I think this is a really major point in all of the Old Testament. God's hand is very clear. Uh, it's very, uh, let me say it a different way, and we'll even get into this tomorrow. God's eye, Israel is the apple of God's eye. And he's going to protect and do whatever he can to watch over them. Be okay, church and saying God has a plan for Israel, and we're not the first thing that he chose. Like, we need to be okay with that. I'll never forget, I had a pastor actually get upset with me because I said the Gentiles were second fiddle. It's because the Jews said, no, we got an opportunity. And all this is part of God's plan, and I'm going to get, I'm going to unfold all of this tomorrow. I'm super excited. I can't, I'm so thankful that we get an opportunity to walk through the jealousy of the Jews component tomorrow. And that's how we're going to wrap up the Pentateuch. But I believe God originally, God's original plan was for his people. And I think that's just, you have to be humble enough to say, and I'm okay with that. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, remember we talked about this, and the heart of your descendants, and you will love him. And here's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. You will love him with all of your heart and all of your soul so that you will live. I see this as a condition. If you want to live, you will love him with everything that you had. And oh, by the way, as you circumcise your heart with the law and it's in your heart and you put it on your head eventually and you put it on your arms, when you make everything about, I'm going to say yes, loving the Lord because of God's law, you're going to actually live. You're going to experience his blessings and not his, his curse. You gotta understand, we're talking old covenant here at this time. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. It's a pretty cool picture here. It says, Therefore, circumcise your hearts 
and don't be stiff-necked any longer. I think this is what it's saying here. You've got to take care of some business so that your hearts are not stiff-necked, so that they're not uh, rebellious, so they're not stubborn. You have to continue to massage your heart by loving the Lord so that you don't think it's all about you. If you want to live, if you want to embrace life and experience blessings, then in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. I love this picture. Look at this. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. The callousness that's there, that's over the time built up, maybe because of bad theology, maybe because of bad experiences, maybe because somebody did something to you. You have to remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah, residents of Jerusalem. If you don't circumcise yourselves to the Lord and allow the heart to be massaged, God says, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. In other words, it's not going to be good if you don't circumcise your heart. And I think what's happened to the American church is that over the course of time, you guys, we're not doing circumcision with the word of God to our hearts. We're not allowing this to radically, radically change our lives. And I wonder sometimes if restoration is being delayed. You ready for this one? Because of our disobedience. I wonder if restoration and true revival in the end is being delayed because we don't want to do anything with this. We'd rather do everything with ourselves. Scripture says in Jeremiah 4 and Deuteronomy 10 to the Israelites, you guys, you have to circumcise yourselves with the word of God. You have to circumcise yourselves to the Lord and allow the heart to be changed. If you do, I love this image. You do this so you'll live. And then watch this in verse 7. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. They don't come to you. They go to the enemies. None of this destruction, none of this low birth rate, none of this kidnapping. Remember all these boils. None of that stuff falls on you. It goes on to the enemies. And then in verse 8 says, Then you will again obey him and follow all of his commands. I am giving you today. It's interesting if we can, and we, we got to wrap up here. It just says in verse 9, The Lord your God will make you prosper abundantly in all the work of your hands, with children, the offspring of your livestock, your land's produce. Indeed, the Lord will again delight in your prosperity as he delighted in that of your fathers. In verse 10, When you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in this book of the law, and here it is, and return to him with all of your heart and all of your soul. It's pretty cool. I'm going to jump all the way here, Kevin. Can we go to the end? Uh, In verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you, here it is, life and death, blessing and curse. And so Moses says, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him and remain faithful to him for he is your life. And I love this. You ready? He will prolong your life. If you walk with him, he'll sustain you. He'll actually give you a longer life. He will prolong your life. Why? So you can live in the land the Lord swore to you. That's not our land. That's their land. Well, we can apply these principles absolutely to the church. I'm not saying that at all, but let's just call it out as it is. This is for the Israelites getting ready to go into a new land. Don't make it something more than it is. Don't apply this. There's nothing worse when people apply, hey guys, we're going to be given the land. That's not ours. And I like this. If we love him, if we obey him, if we remain faithful to him, he becomes our life. And that's the, I don't know how you put this, that's the marching orders for Moses as he's at the plains of Moab and he's saying, Israelites, this is how I want you to live. I know I'm going to go to the New Testament here, but I want to apply all of this to us today. Acts 17, verse 28. 
Look at this. It says, for in him we live and move and exist. I think I could just stay right there. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also uh, we are also his offspring. What I love about this is for in him we live and move and exist. You know what I, that, that means to me? Everything we do, whether you're Israelites that are turning to God or whether you're believers that trust in Jesus or in Yeshua, everything that we do, every way that we live, every way that we move and everything that we just simply do, it needs to be in him. So the choice is ours today. Which path do we want to go? The path that gives us life or the path that gives us death? I promise you, God wants the life path for all of us. Thanks.